Greetings from Raisina Dialogue. I'm here with my very distinguished colleague, Matthias Korman of the OECD. And what we're going to discuss today is a topic, I think, uh, that is on the minds of many, many people who've been involved uh, in all of the efforts associated with climate change and global warming. We are discussing progress post-COP26, whether we are, in fact, achieving the targets, achieving the announcements uh, that were laid out and discussed in COP26 or not. And Matthias and I are going to uh, focus on four topics. Uh, the first topic is tangible progress in terms of commitments and uh, obviously the decarbonization efforts uh, that were discussed at COP26. The second aspect that we are talking is the all-important aspect of show me the money, uh, which is uh, the financing flows that have been discussed and promised uh, during uh, many of these COP discussions. Are they materializing or not? The third question, uh, which for me, uh, as somebody who represents uh, almost 3 million people, uh, is very, very important, is whether the pipeline of projects, the pipeline of decarbonization efforts, is actually making a difference in people's lives or not. Whether we are seeing uh, you know, those, those uh, projects actually happen. And then finally, uh, for all of us, uh, it's not just about decarbonization. It's about decarbonization and development. It has to be development that is just, equitable, uh, and fair to everyone concerned. So even as we undertake this green transformation, are we doing it in a way that is just and equitable? That also uh, is a topic uh, that we would like to discuss. So let me just start uh, by uh, you know, uh, laying this out for Matthias, which is uh, you're obviously tracking what is happening uh, with uh, progress on uh, the decarbonization efforts uh, post-COP26. What is your sense? How is that going? Well, I mean, the good news is that in the lead-up to COP26, more and more countries around the world committed uh, to uh, net-zero emissions, either by 2050, some by 2060, or indeed India by 2070. But of course, I mean, what will matter is not the commitment and the ambition, but real action and real outcomes. And it will be very important over the next few years to really make sure that we very effectively track progress um, and, you know, uh, and of course, there will be a need for more commitments and more efforts moving forward. You're absolutely right, uh, Matthias. Uh, as far as India is concerned, uh, you know, we made some very serious commitments. Uh, the Panch Amrit, as the Honorable Prime Minister said. Uh, and one of our commitments was 500 gigawatts uh, of renewable energy. And uh, I can tell you that we are really working hard uh, to deliver on that. Uh, that requires a fundamental set of changes to our grid, uh, to battery storage, etc. And those require, you know, uh, new policies, new financing mechanisms, uh, and those are very much underway. Similarly, around the world, I know different countries are, are really moving uh, very hard on this. Now, one part of all of this that has both accelerated as well as impeded this uh, effort uh, is the Ukrainian crisis, of course. Uh, there, because oil prices have gone up, uh, we have a situation where people are substituting even faster away uh, from fossil fuels. So it's a very strong price signal that the Ukrainian crisis uh, has sent us. But at the same time, it has snarled supply chains. Uh, so, for example, uh, if you would want to buy an electric vehicle right now, 
many car manufacturers are finding it difficult uh, to get the semiconductors, the chips to be able to uh, make those electric vehicles. What's your sense of this uh, push and pull associated with the Ukrainian crisis? Is that uh, accelerating or obstructing the green transformation? Uh, well, what it has done is reinforce the need to accelerate the green transformation. I mean, you know, clearly uh, the war in Ukraine has uh, driven up the cost of energy. It's reduced energy security, uh, and it has reinforced the need uh, to um, achieve better energy security, energy affordability, a level of energy independence. And indeed, all of that while staying on track uh, in terms of our climate objectives. And you know, what it also shows is that there really is a need to cooperate better uh, at a global level, um, including, of course, via the G20, which India uh, will be chairing in 2023. I mean, the, the, the climate uh, transition, the energy transition to a clean energy transition uh, is even more urgent and not including and in particular uh, for uh, security reasons as well as, as well as for climate reasons. Yeah. I agree with you, Matthias. I think net-net, my view is that it has accelerated. Yes, there are going to be short-term supply disruptions like the chips uh, part that I spoke about, but I think everybody has recognized the vulnerability associated with being dependent on fossil fuels and the fact that you can be held hostage to that vulnerability. Certainly, again, in India's case, and I know uh, globally in the United States and Germany and the UK, uh, all of these efforts have, in fact, been accelerated uh, as a result of that. And we are going to be building up uh, you know, uh, the manufacturing, the production, etc., associated with renewables even faster because we know that ultimately uh, this, is, this is something that makes us very vulnerable. For India, you know, uh, we are importing fossil fuels, Matthias, right now of about $200 billion a year. Our total import bill is $600 billion. So a third of that actually is fossil fuels. Uh, which is all hard currency uh, that we have to spend. So the quicker we can move to renewables, the quicker we can become uh, energy self-reliant, the better off we are going to be, both in terms of strategic uh, security as well as in terms of uh, uh, our own sort of uh, economic growth. So I think just in that same fashion, other countries are going to, uh, going to further accelerate this. Uh, what is happening here in India is truly inspirational. I mean, the speed and the scale of the transformation that is taking place and uh, the, the shift to renewable energy is, is really very impressive. And, and it will be inspirational to emerging market economies around the world. I mean, you know, in India, one of the advantages you have is the uh, massive scale uh, at which you are able to roll out uh, this uh, transformation, which, which of course, uh, is uh, you know, very good in terms of bringing down the cost. You know, in, in the end, what we need, we need energy security, but we also need energy affordability. We need uh, businesses and households to be able to draw on competitively priced, reliable energy supplies. And, and here in India, you really do have a, lot of natural, a number of natural advantages, both in terms of uh, your, your climate conditions, uh, and which are very favorable uh, to renewable energy, solar, uh, wind, and others, um, hydrogen, green hydrogen, uh, but also, uh, of course, you know, the, the, the sheer size of your economy and your population. And our coastline as well, because we can do a lot of offshore wind and tidal power, etc. So all of those, I think, are really helpful uh, to us. Uh, and I think the speed of the transformation that's going to happen in India, whether it is on the renewable side or electric mobility, I think is going to surprise people. So let's turn now to the financing, because you know, if we have to drive this fast, we need the money. 
Some of the modeling work that uh, I and some research groups have been doing suggests that for India, incrementally, we need to start to spend $50 billion additionally right away uh, to be able to achieve net zero by 2070. And that has to build up to $100 billion a year. Now, corporate investment in India is about $150 billion a year, you know, based on some numbers that I've seen. So that would mean that we have to massively accelerate our investment uh, as well. Do you see that money coming? I mean, how is the OECD thinking about that? Well, so firstly, our assessment is that in order to achieve carbon neutrality over the next several decades, we will need to reach uh, $4 trillion US a year globally in annual clean energy investment. And that is, that is a quadrupling of the current level of investment around the world. Now, you know, clearly governments around the world, the public sector will not be able to achieve that on its own. Uh, it will require uh, private sector investment. It will require involvement of the financial markets, which will mean that as well as the public investment, which of course needs to continue, we need to ensure that we've got the policy settings and the regulatory settings providing certainty to investors. And, and, and we, of course, need the projects that are able to be rolled out in order to achieve the transition we need. Those numbers are staggering, Matthias, and trillions of dollars are going to be required. I totally agree with you. 90% of that, my view, 90% of that has to come from the private sector. It has to be driven by the capital markets, which means that you know there have to be returns associated with it. And that's what's going to drive you know all of this. My own sense is that because of these massive investments, it's very GDP positive and jobs positive if we can accelerate investment. And my headline is net zero is net positive. Net zero is net positive. It's a very because, good line. Uh, so if we, can, if we can put in those massive investments coming into the private sector in productive investments in startups in green industries, it's going to drive GDP growth. It's going to drive jobs. In India, it's going to drive clean air as well for us because air pollution is a huge problem for us. And that's why net zero is net positive. That's what I believe. Now let's come to the projects. What are you seeing around the world on projects? Uh, well, you know, all around the world, countries are pursuing different technologies and different opportunities. And, and of course, I mean, the green hydrogen opportunity is one that is being pursued in, uh, in uh, India, but also in parts of Latin America. And across Europe, there's a lot of interest in, in the opportunities that come with that technology. But I mean, the International Energy Agency, which is part of the uh, family of OECD agencies, uh, has, uh, has identified that about 50% of emissions reductions to get to carbon neutrality um, will have to come from technologies that are not yet fully developed, that are still in the prototype space. So really what we will need, as well as investment in projects, is investment uh, in research and development and innovation. And what we also need is a, a better uh, flow of uh, information exchange and, and information exchange about technology so that really countries all around the world can uh, take advantage of it. As a former venture capitalist and investor, Matthias, I will say to you, that even if we can get these investments mobilized, which I think we could, uh, and step it up over time, our real challenge is going to be on the projects and in the startups that are going to be necessary to make this green transformation happen. So what we really have to do uh, is to uh, enable and mobilize uh, lots and lots of companies to be able to come up with the portfolio of green projects, green investments, that will really make this green transformation happen. Because it's a totally different development approach 
that we have to follow, right? Uh, instead of you know petrol-based vehicles, we have to have electric vehicles. If we're going to have electric vehicles, we have to have the battery supply chain. If we have to have the battery supply chain, then obviously we need the rare earths and the minerals and so on. So completely different set of uh, investments required, different sets of companies required. Battery recycling will become a very big deal. We'll have to create battery recycling companies. Uh, the whole nature of uh, how uh, you plan buildings may change because we may need to put in heat pumps as opposed to air conditioners. So all of these things, right, will require tremendous bottoms-up uh, research, bottoms-up investments, and bottoms-up uh, execution. That is where I think the real gating factor is going to be. And I think there is where we as policymakers have to spend a lot of time asking ourselves, are we putting in place the right mechanisms to enable these green industries to flourish? Well, I mean, it's a very important point you raise. I mean, really, we, we do have to ensure that markets are getting the right signals, that we're providing the right incentives. And, I mean, there's the approach to carbon pricing, but, you know, it's very hard to roll that out in a way that is globally consistent. Uh, what we really need um, is to ensure that we do have the right policy levers to send very clear signals to the private sector that this um, climate finance, this climate investment is required and to, to really leverage the private sector to help us get uh, to carbon That's absolutely right. And uh, again, our experience in India is because, you know, we built out our highway network, we built out our financial system, we built out our IT services industry. In the last 20 years, it's gone from being, you know, an industry that was a few billion dollars, today being a few hundred billion dollars, right? So in 20, 25 years, in my own uh, sort of professional career, I've seen that industry scale up very, very quickly. So it's doable. It's doable. Certainly over the next two, three, four decades, we can do it. But to your point, which is exactly right, is that the markets have to work. The market signals have to work. Then the investment and the companies and all of that will work because government can't do it. Markets have to do the job, right? And we have to create the right kind of environment, the right kind of policy framework for those markets to take off. That is really the way that this has to happen. Let me now come to the final topic, which is about uh, just transition. Again, as an elected representative, you know, representing almost 3 million people, uh, I have a real concern about how the transition has to happen. Uh, we have lots of people in, you know, the fossil fuel industries, in the coal industry, in the petroleum industry, etc. There is a transition question for them. In addition, as we create these new industries and these new jobs, we have to make sure that it is equitable, that we draw people in, we give them the skills necessary to survive. All of this also is going to take a lot of effort. What is your thinking on that? Have you, have you also applied uh, your uh, institution? Well, you've essentially summed it up. Um, the, the transition will be beneficial in a job sense for many people, but those people will need to be equipped with the necessary skills in order to be able to participate uh, in those opportunities. But there will also be uh, segments of populations all around the world that will be severely disrupted. And we've got to ensure that we provide the uh, necessary and appropriate transitional support, including the upskilling and reskilling opportunities so that they can find the uh, opportunities of the future. Um, and, and of course, in, in a, in a um, household sense, at the low income scale, um, people will you know, potentially be quite heavily impacted and, and there ought to be policy measures to ensure that you know, people in particular at the low income end uh, can manage the transition and the cost implications of that transition uh, in, in an appropriate fashion, that they're not left behind, that they don't fall through the cracks. You're absolutely right. Net zero is net positive. 
but net means there are winners and losers there are more winners than losers but there are losers as well there are people uh, that are going to be impacted the good news mathias uh, to my mind is the fact that we have time we have decades here uh so even for example if you look at coal right as we start to shift away from coal and we shift to renewables everybody who's in the coal industry associated with the coal economy is going to be impacted but because we have 30 40 50 years we can make the transition gradually and we can find you know we can let people retire out Uh, who are in the coal economy right now for example or the fossil fuel economy and replace that their children will then work you know in solar uh, plants as opposed to working in a coal mine so we have that opportunity over a period of time to be able to affect that transition but the important thing is we have to start to plan for it now and to your point which i agree with uh, 100% it's the reskilling and the upskilling that is going to be very very necessary uh, what what are some of the mechanisms uh, that you all are thinking about i'm sure in uh, in oecd countries people have already begun working on this uh, well i mean you know we've got two transitions that are happening in parallel the, the green transition and the digital transformation and both of them have got um, you know winners and losers potentially and we got to make sure that those uh, who are i mean you know, in india and its skills development its skills development its skills development and and it's 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 making sure that people have the tools in order to be able to participate in the opportunities and for those who uh, really um, are not able to make that next step we need to ensure that we've got the appropriate uh, income support mechanisms in place Thank you very much Matthias with that we conclude our session thank you so much for participating i had a great time uh, discussing all of these issues and hopefully uh, you will have enjoyed our interaction as well thank you very very much thank you very much thank you for tuning in to policy pod the orf podcast please subscribe to our channel for updates on upcoming episodes